0: Yahweh, the living God who has revealed himself in our creation as we look at his design, revealed himself to men, and was recorded in scripture, and he's revealing himself to us. He's revealed himself in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is God, and we are not. He is God, and we are not. More specifically, we are truly dependent upon him for everything. Now that statement may seem like it came from the pages of Captain Obvious. But we as a race, as a people over the ages, we who are the crown of his creation, created in his image, we continually challenge God for the throne of the Lord of the universe. It started in the garden, Genesis 3, where the woman and the man had the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil in their hand, and they ate it because they saw that it would make them wise, it would make them like God, knowing good from evil. Go along the narrative of the scripture, and then we get to Genesis 11, where men and women decide to build a mighty tower in the plain of Shinar, trying to reach to the heavens so that we can reach God and make a name for ourselves. And God could use their languages and again show them that he was God and they are not. We get to the book of Judges. This phrase is repeated many times that everyone did what was right in their own eyes, basically making ourselves the authority rather than God and then in Daniel we read of a king a mighty king named Nebuchadnezzar chapter 4 who God has used to chastise his people he is the king the superpower of the time and he is warned by Daniel the servant saying this is all given to you by God Don't fall into the trap of saying, I did this. And a few months later, exactly that happens. He looks out over his kingdom and he says, Have I not done this by my own mighty arm? And in that moment, God strikes him with insanity for seven years until he finally comes to his senses and gives glory to God. And even if we acknowledge that we are dependent there's always the temptation to think that somehow we bring something to the table. What we just sang about our salvation—Jesus paid it all—says something different. But Paul is addressing this this deception, this tendency in our humanity in the church at Corinth, and through a combination of their god gift and giving gifted, God-given gifts and buying into the human pride of their own society, they have created delusions about themselves and it's created divisions among themselves. And they're operating in a manner that is contrary to their calling, that is to be set aside or sanctified for Christ. And we're going to see how Paul reminds them what seems like foolishness in the world's eyes God wants to display his power in what seems even foolish. So let me pray for us. And if you want to open up your Bibles, we'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 today, into chapter 2. Look what God has for us in word. So indeed, you are God alone, our Heavenly Father in Jesus, God who came and put on flesh, God the Holy Spirit. Opens our eyes. Lord, a unity that we don't fully understand, and yet we glorify you. So would you convince us, convince our hearts, even as we look at some things that our world thinks is foolish, thinks are foolish, or that you indeed are the God of the universe, and you have everything in your hand and want to display your power and your glory. To what seems foolish. So, Lord, open our eyes. We need you to do it. We ask you, Lord, to be with us in this time. Help us respond to your word. Respond to what you want us to want to say to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. If you're here with us last week, we were in chapter one, around verses ten through twelve. And we were finding out that there were divisions among the, the Corinthian church because they were lining themselves behind their favorite leader. Some were getting behind Paul. Some were getting behind Apollos. Some were getting behind Peter or Cephas. And the truth of the matter is those guys weren't divided against each other. In fact, they saw themselves all pointing to the living Lord Jesus Christ. But, you know, the Corinthians were enamored with human wisdom. They were anchored in eloquent speech and, and human understanding, and they were creating divisions. And they were saying, no, I think Paul's better than the Paul's. Well, I think Paul's better than Cephas. And it was creating divisions. And Paul points out, he says, guys, look, was anyone, was I crucified to save you? No. Were any of you Baptized in my name? No. There's only one Savior. It's the man Jesus Christ. And I was sent to, (coughs) excuse me, to preach his gospel, to preach his good news. But in human, in relation to human wisdom, it seems like foolishness. This is a place, though, where God wants to display his power. So we're going to pick it up. We're going to, Go over some ground we've been on before, and then we're going to continue on. We're going to pick up at verse 18. And Paul says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent. I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, for since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know Him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs, and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block for Jews. And foolishness to the Gentiles, but to those whom God has called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. God's foolishness is shown powerful in entering our mess God's foolishness is shown powerful in entering our mess we talked about last week proclaiming Jesus Christ and him crucified to the Jews it was a stumbling block a crucified Messiah that makes no sense in their mind they had expectations that the Messiah was going to come punish the nations punish the unfaithful and set up his kingdom in Jerusalem and the Jews were going to be at the top of the food chain. A crucified messiah on a roman cross that makes no sense. And then there's just the the challenge that what i can't be righteous by keeping the law i need someone else to do that for me. That's a stumbling block. For the greeks for the greeks the thought that jesus would die to try and redeem this this physical world well that was that was foolishness in itself. they saw the world as this this crumbling thing, the unreality of uh, a shadow of the real reality they didn't understand that Jesus came to claim and restore this broken this broken creation he came to redeem it, and even so we today sometimes look at. The cross of Christ as foolishness. A popular society doesn't it? Does, doesn't it? We want God to prove himself through science. We balk at the thought of what sin? You're saying what I'm doing is sin? Who are you to say that what I'm doing is sin? And we bristle at the thought of submitting to someone else. You see, if we have enough money, enough resources, enough technology, science, medical breakthroughs, enough education, enough strong military, the right government, we can become our own savior. We can become our own God. But let's have a Dr. Phil moment here. How's that working for us? How's that working for us? As Americans, let's look around, right? Quality of life has never been higher. Never been more people educated. Never been more information out there. You know, we have a hard time determining right from wrong. We have candidates for president who none of us really want to elect. Our argument is just who is, who is the more morally reprehensible than the other, right? The health care system is broken. People are getting shot every week, and that's not hyperbole. We have riots over racism and police brutality. We have bank executives who are getting a golden parachute if they leave for opening illegal bank accounts instead of going to jail. We have a war on terrorism. We're involved militarily in Afghanistan, Iraq, and Syria. We're looking at North Korea, wondering whether they're building a nuclear uh, ballistic missile that can reach us. Iran doesn't seem far behind. We're wondering about Russia and China as well and then we live in a society that wants to post everything on social media everything even what was considered shameful years ago have a great day i'm not a pessimist folks, but i'm just trying to paint a picture of where we're at as a society and it's evidence that there's a problem and the problem is in the heart we can't fix it by government We can't fix it through legislation. We're not going to fix it by technology. The problem is in the heart, and that is sin. And this is where the foolishness of God enters into history. He comes in and enters our mess. What an amazing thing. To deal with our alienation and our sin, our alienation from God and from each other. He gets involved. Feet on the ground, if you will, but in a weak manner. He was born of a virgin, so there's always a question of his legitimacy, right? He was born in a barn, so we question his birth and the, the sanitariness of that. He's born to a poor couple, so we question his nobility. He was trained as a carpenter, so we questioned his training adequacy. He only had a three and a half year uh, ministry, so we questioned his longevity. His disciples were quite ordinary men, blue collar, so we questioned his constituency. He dies a humiliating, uh, painful death, and so we questioned his mortality. The thing is, he He put on flesh and dwelt among us, the king of glory. And he lived this life. And so we can't say to him, you don't know what it's like. He does. And it was probably more frustrating for him than us. Because he could have called 10,000 any moment to do his bidding. But he didn't. He lived in perfect obedience to the Father. He willingly died to pay a debt we couldn't. He rose from the dead to conquer a foe that we couldn't. He gives life to all who put their faith in Him. You might have right relationship, right standing. You might be reconciled to a holy God, giving you eternal life and transformation. He is transformed. The world may say it's foolishness. It may still say it's foolish. But I want to say that nothing has had a greater impact on humankind than Jesus. The God Man entering history. If you don't believe me, I'd love to recommend a book called Who is This Man by John Ortberg. It talks about how his entering history has changed how we treat women, how we treat children, how we treat the down and out. It's had an impact on art, music, science. The hospital came about because of followers of Jesus Christ. The Mayo Clinic here is here because of the impact of Jesus. He has changed history. It's God at work in hearts. It's the power of God, His foolishness, that shows himself power. Well, number two, God's foolishness is so powerful in those whom He saves. Pick it up at verse 26. Brothers, think of what you were before you, when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many of noble birth. If you know the context of, of Paul's letter here, they were finding reason to criticize Paul because he didn't seem to have all the earthly credentials that they wanted him to have. And yet Paul turns around and talks to them and shows them that he reflects back to the standard that they're putting on him, they were not able to keep themselves. Not many were wise, not many were influential, not many of noble we birth. But it's evidence that God cares very little for what the world considers important. And for all of us, we need to be careful to judge God's love or God's favor because we're not receiving what we think the world thinks is important, or based on our circumstances, or even earthly trials. Indeed, the most loving thing God may be doing to you is saying no. He continues on in verse 27. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and despise things, and the things that are not, to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before God. You see, God wants to show that it is not those who seem to have what this world values that he favors, but rather those who are aware that they are need. Jesus will say in his Sermon on the Mount, you find it in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who know they are spiritually bankrupt, they've got nothing to offer except their need for God to meet them. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you know that, if you know your need, it's how God wants to meet you. Show his power. We've got brothers and sisters in Haiti right now who, according to this world, don't have a lot, right? But you know what? If they have Jesus, they have more than Bill Gates has right now. They've got more than whoever we would consider having their act together. So one may be well educated and intelligent. But your education and your intelligence cannot save you. You may be well connected with important people, but your connections will not save you. You may have great financial and family resources, but those money and resources will not save you. You may be very devout and very religious. But unless that religion is connected and connected to a faith, what Jesus can do, what Jesus has done, then you cannot be saved. During Jesus' earthly ministry, he hung out with people that were questionable. The sinners, the tax collectors, the prostitutes. But they were willing to listen to him because they knew they had a need. And even the religious people who came around and followed Jesus, they're questioning, why are you hanging out with those folks? And Jesus said, look, they're ahead of you in heading toward the kingdom of heaven. Because they respond. And You're sitting there wondering, do I really need you, Jesus? Do I really need to repent and respond to the kingdom of heaven? Jesus chooses the least likely but those who know they need him. Few of you may know Bob Mankaka. He's an African gentleman who usually sits over here. No offense, lefties. But Bob has an amazing testimony. And if you don't know him, I'd encourage you to spend some time with but a young Bob Mamkaka, when he was a college student, God called him to preach the gospel. Go to, going into this shanty town where the government soldiers were even afraid to go. And he started preaching the gospel. And all of a sudden, people were responding. Including the bad guys. The thugs. The gangsters. There was a guy named Shaman. That was his street and he was the guy who was in charge of making, you know, liquor and prostitution and selling drugs there. Jesus, this is a guy that we think is a bad man, a menace to society. And God reaches down into this man's heart and changes him. He makes him his servant. All of a sudden, that stuff stops happening and that And there's a point where the government wants to stop Bob from preaching the gospel. And this shaman guy shows up and says, Hey, you know who I am. I've been in and out of your jails. And your government soldiers and your police are afraid to come into my neighborhood. This is what has happened. This is what has happened to me. Bootleg liquor has stopped being sold. Drugs have stopped being sold. Prostitution has stopped happening. You want to stop the gospel here? You want these things to continue? Is that what you want? And all of a sudden the government officials presu- 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 came together and said, uh let's talk. God reaches and saves the least likely. That's where he wants to display his power. Reaching somebody who seems unreachable or foolish. But it's God who does this. Verse 30, It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now, maybe you're sitting here and kind of go, you know, that sounds good, Pastor. I really want to respond to Jesus, but I've gone too far. And you don't know what I've done. And I don't. But Jesus does. And you can't go on too far with Him. Because He was God who sacrificed me. And His atonement is eternal. But don't be saying, I'm going to wait until I get my act together or till I become a better person to follow Him. Put my faith in Him. Because. He's the change agent. He is the one who comes in and changes you. To clean yourself up before you respond to him is like taking a shower before you take a bath. He is the one who wants to come in and change you, to save you. And it's one of the wisest things you can do is to place your faith in him. He is the wisdom of God. And in placing your faith in him, you may not end up being smarter at the end of the day, as far as human intelligence is concerned. But it gives you His righteousness, His holiness. It makes you a child of God and He starts His transforming process. You are wise because you are allowing the power of God to come and work in you. But it's a place where no one can boast. No one can say, I did this. I brought this to the table. No, it was Jesus. So let Him who boasts, if you're gonna boast about something, let's boast about Jesus. That's why we sing the songs we sing. Why worship Him and make much of Him in our services. Number three, God's foolishness is shown powerful in those He uses. Here we're in chapter 2 now, verse 1. And so it was with me, brothers, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom. I proclaimed to you the testimony about God for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Christ and Jesus and Him crucified I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words but with the demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest in human wisdom but on God's is basically folks, the gospel that you responded to it didn't come with me making an eloquent presentation having well thought out arguments I didn't even have a powerpoint that's in the Greek but you know no, it was just Jesus the God man and him crucified and I came in fear in weakness, wondering what God was going to do, but it was a demonstration of His power. Paul will say in his letter to the Romans, verse 1, chapter, I mean, verse 1, verse, chapter 1, verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. There is something powerful when you preach the message, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yes, it may take some explanation, at but there's something powerful. When somebody gets that, it is what changes somebody. Have you ever heard of Jonathan Edwards? Jonathan Edwards was one of the premier theologians before the United States became the United States. He was a grandson of a, of a preacher and he felt the call to preach at the age of 20. graduated from Yale at 14. And got Yet when Jonathan Edwards preached in during the December of 1734, he stood up and preached sermons about the justification by faith. But here's how he did it in a very monotone nasal voice holding his manuscript up to his face like this barely gesturing if he was in my homiletics class which is a preaching class in seminary he probably would have gotten a deep. and yet God used that preaching time in the, in the small congregation only about 30 folks for six people to come to Jesus. And you know what? By that spring, 30 more had to, to Jesus. God using what seemed foolish. I mean, his his sermons are powerful. You can read them. But his delivery was in human weakness. But it didn't matter. It's the Spirit of God who used it to jump and emptiness to save Jesus. I'm going to tell you about my how I see myself in my own gifting. I do not believe I have the gift of evangelism, and yet God still calls me to do the work of an evangelist. And there are many times when I've preached, and I'm giving out a gospel invitation, I don't know what God is doing. But there have been a few times when people have come to me and said, you know what, when you gave that invitation, I put my faith in Jesus. And I said, really? Because I had no idea. And I felt weak. I felt foolish. Yet God used that. And I want to encourage you. You may feel weak and foolish as you're talking about Jesus. He wants to use you. It's a great place to be. I mean, think about it. We went through the whole you know, story of the Acts. God is using all these unlikely people. I mean, Peter is a fisherman for crying out loud. He spent three years with Jesus. Jesus dies going to heaven. Hey, I'm turning it over to you, Peter and the boys. It is a story of weakness that is accused by the power of God to spread the gospel to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. God's foolishness is so powerful in those needs. So perhaps you're thinking, you know, I I know God might be encouraging me to take these steps, but I do feel foolish. I do feel underqualified. I do feel unruly. That might be so. But I know a God who wants to use you. Our faith is not ourselves. God number four God's foolishness is shown powerful in its revelation verse six we do however speak a message of wisdom among the mature but not the wisdom of this age the rulers of this age we're coming to nothing no We declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has seen what God has prepared for those who have been. These are the things. These are the things that God has revealed by us. See, God's wisdom is not information, it is a person. A person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was a mystery that was hidden, as it says in verse seven. But it was God's plan all along. And it is for those of us who believe, we are destined for glory. But it is not apprehended by humanity. Think of this. The learned and the powerful had Jesus in their very presence, and yet they could not discern that he was the Christ, that he was the Son of God. They couldn't apprehend it. They couldn't apprehend it with their human wisdom. And yet, I want to say, even that fact was God's wisdom at work. You see, if they had recognized that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was God incarnate, they wouldn't have crucified him, right? They might have worshipped him, fallen down, if which was part of the right response, but there would be no payment for our sin. There would only eventually be judgment. So God, in his wisdom and his kindness, cloaked Jesus' identity the wisdom of man. And there's so many today who don't recognize who Jesus is. All the reading, all the research, all the going to church is not going to help you understand unless God reveals it to you through His Holy Spirit. He has to do it. That's what verse 10 says. These things God has revealed to us by His Spirit. When he does that, he reveals the truth about who you are in the sight of a holy God and who he is as our only Savior. This is about being born again. It's a wisdom. It is about wisdom from above that only comes by the power of God through his Holy Spirit. If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, Whether you realize that or not, it's because God opened your eyes to His Holy Spirit. And if you've not yet put your faith in Jesus Christ, you need Him to do that. You need Him to open your eyes. What's interesting is that God in His mercy does it sometimes even when we're not looking. But on the other hand, He does honor those who are honestly seeking Him. Jeremiah 29.13 says, When you seek you will seek me and find me, and you will seek me with your whole heart. If you're seeking him with your whole heart, I'm going to tell you, God will open your eyes. He will honor that, because he honors his words. And to those of us who have responded to the gospel, to Jesus, there is a promise here. Verse 9, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. But again, it's a promise that's only found in what is perceived as the foolishness of God. So as we walk away from this passage, here's what I want you to take home. That God is pleased to show His power in foolishness. The foolishness of His gospel. The foolishness of those who He chooses to use. The foolishness of of even what he calls us to do. I want to end with this last story. There was a young woman named Gladys Allward. She was born in 1902. She's not not young anymore. But Gladys was born to a working class family. And quickly realized that at the age of 14, she was probably destined for a life of servitude as a, Parlor maid, you know, a house servant, basically, and yet God got a hold of Alice, and she sensed that God was calling her to serve in China. So Alice saved all—I'm glad I mean, saved all of her money—and was taking classes at the China Inland Mission. And yet they determined that she was academically inadequate to go. She didn't know what she was going to do, and yet God was calling her putting a burden on her to go to China. So she makes contact with a missionary widow named Jeannie Lawson in China. And they start corresponding. And She says, look, if you can get out here, I'll bring you on as my partner. So Gladys, again, saves her all her money. Doesn't have enough to take a ship there. So she takes the Trans-Siberian Railroad across all of Russia. Gets over there, catches a boat from there, from Japan to, to China, finds Mrs. Lawson, and finds that what her job is, is to help run an inn for Muellers. Wasn't what she thought. And indeed, people really didn't respond to her because she's European. But when they brought in the Muellers at night, she got to share the gospel of Jesus Christ to these Muellers. And over time, the, the gospel started spreading along those viewing trails and over time God raised her to a place of favor with the the governor of Banchuria at the time basically she was a foot inspector she'd go into houses and inspect whether Chinese girls had their feet wrapped up because that was a thing to do for for um, families of nobility that that, that girls would have very tiny feet. They were soon discovering that that was really having a problem with how they are walking. And so, God God used her to give her influence then, but ultimately, God brought to her a group of orphans. Starting with one, it escalated to to a hundred. And by 1938, I believe it is, actually it's 1940, the Japanese are coming in to invade China. And so she leads this group of 100 orphans into the mountains for about 12 days, day and night. And they get to the Yellow River. And the Yellow River has been closed off because of the military conflict up the river. And they're praying, we have no way to get across this, this river. And so 100 children who have been influenced by Gladys Allwood drop to their knees and pray, Lord, we need a boat. Soon after, the boat was floating down the river, completely empty. That's just part of her story. She had a huge impact on China, and if you want to read about her, she's about a book called *The Small Woman*. But who thought that this uneducated blue-collar woman would be used greatly in the country of China? She's very, I believe, Chinese Taipei these days. But God using what seemed foolish. What seemed insignificant? What seemed weak? And it should do two things to us. It should humble us, because God doesn't need what we have. But it should also give us great confidence that God does want to use us, even when we feel like we are weak. That is a very encouraging thing. Let me pray for us, and Brian, would you and the worship team come? close us in worship. Indeed, Lord, we are humbled by your word that you use the foolish things to shame the wise of this world. You use the weak things to shame the power. And indeed, you can use all those things for your glory. But Lord, we are grateful that you have chosen us. Maybe not so many of us have been so wise, so influential, so noble in our birth or our background, and yet you've chosen us. Not because of we have anything to offer, but because you are good. And Lord, I pray for that person right now who wants to respond to you. And if that's you, I would like you to just pray along in your in your own heart with these words. Lord Jesus, I am weak. I am sinful. And I need you. So, would you come into my heart? Would you make me your own? Would you make me your child? Give me the life that you have to offer. And then take me and use me to advance your kingdom, doing me what I cannot do myself. Lord, that's the prayer of all of us today. We want you to be glorified in our lives, use our weakness to show your strength and your glory. You are God alone, and we worship.